1: Hi, this is Pod Save the UK.
0: I'm Coco Card.
1: And I'm Nish Kumar.
0: And this week, please, please save me from another Suella Braverman mess.
1: Yes, that's right. The Roger Federer of British political fuck-ups is hogging the headlines again.
0: She is already taking up way too much of my time. I'd much rather be focusing on the real stuff, the big issues.
1: Like inventing a fair migration system and overhauling our moribund democracy.
0: But don't worry, we're on it. Don't fret. With the help of our special guest, philosopher and economist Daniel Chandler. So this week, the UK needs saving from yet another psychodrama of the Conservative Party, amid more rumours of plots and cabinet splits. And seemingly, at the heart of it all, is Suella de Ville, also known as Speedy Sue.
1: She is already r- rapidly emerging into a real... Uh, star of this podcast, and not for good reason. It's like episode four, and we're back again talking about her. A quick summary is that she's been mired in a row over whether she broke the ministerial code over a speeding ticket, which she received, and then she asked first if she could use MPs' expenses to pay the speeding fine, uh, and then uh, there was an allegation that she asked uh, civil servants to get her out of her speed awareness course uh, because she was simply too famous, which I think, Suella, you've really overestimated how much the British public gives a fuck about (laughs) politics. Like, okay, you're not stormsy, okay? But uh, yes, so she was was worried about that. Uh, The Prime Minister, Rishi Sunak, was accused of dithering over it. uh, But as of this morning, as we record on Wednesday, uh, he's decided to not order an investigation into whether her asking the civil servants to get her out of the speed awareness course broke the ministerial code after she was caught speeding in
0: 2022. Just on the uh, subject that everyone would recognise her, uh, did you see James Blunt's tweet?
1: No, what was James Blunt's
0: tweet? (laughs) So Eddie Marson, the actor, sent a tweet saying, I did a speed awareness course and actually no one recognised me. It was very humbling, (laughs) something like that. And then James Blunt replied and said, I did a speed awareness course and I thought no one would recognise me except at the end when we all had to talk with the tutor and say what we would do if we were feeling sort of hit up in the car because that can make you speed. And someone said, have you considered James Blunt? (laughs) Playing James Blunt. And that's, uh, I just feel like Suella Brotherman would... um, it would really bruise her ego that no one recognized her and would spend the whole time being like, Are you that one from Bend It Like Beckham? (laughs) (laughs) the whole time. Um, But anyway, since the speeding story broke, there have been further revelations. The Independent has reported more allegations of ministerial code breaches over Braverman's failure to formally disclose years of previous work with the Rwandan government. And then last night, The Guardian reported government sources claiming that Home Office civil servants were forced to fact-check the Home Secretary's statements to Cabinet... Up to six occasions this happened after she was making basic errors and simply getting the facts wrong.
1: Yeah, I mean, she's um, she's not a stickler for detail. It's not particularly surprising. But do you think that she is out of the woods, Coco?
0: Well, I mean, we saw today that uh, Rishi Sunak is not going to push any further with this speeding ticket debacle. And, um, you know, it's funny because since we spoke about this last, which was yesterday, listeners, this is what we do. We talk about politics every day. Um, I've changed, i slightly changed my position on the whole the so whole thing.
1: Your your position initially was, I couldn't care less about this.
0: Well, that's, that seems a bit harsh. <laughs> <laughs> that seems a bit well, harsh. Well,
1: at the very least, you thought it was, and I do think this is something that chimes with a lot of people, that the speeding story is a bit of a storm in a tea. Listen,
0: Suella Braverman saying, oh, I'm worried about my re- insurance premiums because of points on my license is the most relatable she has <laughs> ever been to anyone, yeah, right? It's just true. not a big yeah. deal. Last that's time, I I have to tell you about this. Uh, maybe I shouldn't. I'm going to do it anyway. Um, I got done recently, last year. Yeah. For running a red light. Oh, wow. In my defence, in my defence, <laughs> it was like in the middle of the night, all the roads were empty. Right. And Basically, we came up to a traffic light and the lane going left had a green, it was, and then the lane going forward was red. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I yeah, sort yeah. of in the quick misjudged. Yeah. And I went on the red light. And they send you that little picture and it's so incriminating, isn't it? Yeah, so I got sent this this letter and they send you all the evidence. And then there's a bit where you sort of say, yes, that was me, that was me driving. And then there's a little box that says, if you have anything you want to say to the person judging this uh, violation, this, this crime yeah. that you did off the road, uh, please do say. And so I wrote... I know that I did it and I'm terribly sorry. <laughs> I'm so sorry. I'll never do it again. It was a perfect mistake. It was an honest mistake. And no one got hurt. I'll never do it again. I've learnt my lesson. I've learned my lesson. There you go.
1: So Anna I could learn a lot from you. I grovelled
0: real hard because I didn't want the points on my licence because it raises your premiums. That's a fact. That's a thing that happens. Mm, mm, mm. Um, so I did the grovelling in an attempt to kind of avoid the points, just get a fine and do whatever course uh, was required. And then, yeah, they just sent me a letter back with no response to the... Uh, groveling letter that I'd sent. It just said, mm. "Please find attached the form that shows your points on your license. That shows your three hundred and forty pound fine and your course that you have to go on."
1: Well, so yeah, the allegation was that she broke the ministerial code by asking civil servants to help her out on a private matter, which she. Sh- technically is a Brit, but anyway, whatever has happened, Rishi Sunak has decided he's comfortable with what she's done, so there's not going to be an investigation. The fresh ministerial code breaches are around her failure to disclose work that she'd done with the Rwandan government. She actually co-founded a charity called the Africa Justice Foundation with uh, Cherie Blair, uh, which trained Rwandan government lawyers between 2010 uh, and 2015. But this was all before she was an MP, so it seems like that's going to disappear, though the fact, the optics of it are not great, given that one of her kind of flagship policies as Home Secretary involves uh, a programme of sending people from, asylum seekers from small boats off to Rwanda. And it's a a contract that's been worth quite a bit of money towards the Rwandan government. £140 million, in fact.
0: Right. And that's why, you know, like I was saying to you yesterday, it's not that I don't want Suella to go down. I do want her to go down. I want her to go down for the genuinely morally repugnant things she's done repeatedly that we've spoken about on this. A speeding ticket, SOS, but like it just don't really it didn't really give me the now I know I understand the argument like you have to bring a beast down on a technicality, Al Capone went down on tax evasion. Al Capone, yeah. But the thing about Al Capone being brought down on tax evasion is that it actually did herald the demise of the mafia. Yeah. But Braverman is just... She's just one of many... She's a symptom of this culture in the Conservative Party. We got rid of Tony Soprano last time, Pretty Patel, yeah. and then we got Paulie, Suella Braverman. <laughs> Who are we going to get next? Do you know what I mean? So I want the punishments to be actually about the, the poisonous things that she does. So I, I found it hard to be that invested in this Speedy Sue story?
1: I'll tell you why I'm invested in it. I'm invested in it from the position of Rishi Sunak. Rishi Sunak has tried to portray himself as somebody who is moving away from a kind of political culture of, um, you know, corruption and things that sit corruption adjacent, which is becoming my catch <laughs> yeah, term for yeah. getting out and getting sued on this podcast. <laughs> Just say the word adjacent after it and he seemed to be fine. Um, but he's uh, trying to restore the party's reputation for competence. But at the same time, he's so uh, in hock to the right wing of the party that he constantly has to allow them, essentially, to do whatever they want without any proof. He allows them to chat shit without getting banged. Yeah. And this, this is a problem that's afflicted various Conservative Prime Ministers. I mean... Priti Patel is a good example of somebody who actually was lost her first ministerial job under Theresa May because she held a meeting with a delegation from the Israeli government without informing the British government which is I, 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 whilst it it might not technically be treason it's not as far away from treason as you would like. Treason adjacent. It's treason Say adjacent. It. <laughs> it's treason adjacent. Um, and so, but then she was, she, she a couple of years later, was Home Secretary under Boris Johnson. And similarly with Suella Braverman, uh, she actually, just before Rishi Sunak became Prime Minister, she was forced to resign because she'd sent uh, official documents on her personal email. Six days later, she was back in the same job because she is a significant figure on the right of the Conservative Party and Rishi Sunak is unable to keep them under control. So all I'm saying is the important element of this story for me is that Rishi Sunak is exactly the same as all of his predecessors in that every political decision he makes is calculated not for the benefit of the British people, but in order to keep order within the Conservative Party and specifically on the right wing of the Conservative Party.
0: But there was an interesting story that came out recently from The Mirror where they were saying that uh, their journalists phoned Suella's team to ask about this speeding ticket and they repeatedly denied it i think it was about four times in the end wow yeah just as an aside by the way if you ever get a chance the mirror have actually run the transcript of the journalist asking uh the Suella Brubman's representative about the speeding ticket and it is like one of the most funny british conversations you'll ever see it's just like so is it a thing then yeah <laughs> and the other person's like, what do you mean? What are you asking? What are you asking? I'm asking, is it a thing? I don't know what you're on about, mate. I don't know what you're on about. It's not what you expect for from, but at the same time, relatable content. So we've all very much been there. Yeah, but I mean, look, Nish, I agree exactly with what you're saying and that's why I'm saying since we've spoken right. I have sort of come around to it also because of those additional stories that came out not just the ticket but also the uh, situation with the her relationship to the Rwandan government and also this mirror story in a way all these little stories are kind of joining up to create a picture of her as a Incompetent, certainly, but also opportunistic yeah. and shady politicians. Yeah. So, actually, maybe all these little stories do have a value. So, anyway, you've won. You won the fight. <laughs> I owe you a, the next lunch or whatever. <laughs>
1: and, and just before we move off this subject, because I do think there is there are there is an interesting point to be made here that we should. And the point that I think has been really getting your goat this week is that there are way more important stories that yes, we should be focusing absolutely. on. But I do think there is something important here in that. Rishi Sunak is facing a country in crisis and yet he's, he's constantly being distracted by ministers acting out because uh, as we go into record, this is a story that's slowly unfolding, but Boris Johnson uh, is has been referred to police by the cabinet office over new claims that he broke lockdown rules. And his allies, uh, according to the Times newspaper this morning, his allies are threatening to obstruct Rishi Sunak's premiership unless Sunak takes action to stop what they're calling a witch hunt against Boris Johnson. So the best thing about this story is that Boris Johnson has uh, government appointed lawyers defending him in allegations that he lied about lockdown breaches in 10 Downing Street during the pandemic, they uh, consulted various official records that Johnson ha- has had and found that there were several visits to the Prime Minister's grace and favour residence, which is a very fancy term for holiday home. I hate the fact that we have to call Checkers, which is the, the name of the house, a grace and favour residence. Like it's, it, it's a holiday home. It's a fancy caravan, OK? But <laughs> there are allegedly... Uh, several claims that they found in the official records of people that visit the prime minister in official prime ministerial residences. that And so there are now allegations that those records show that there were more lockdown breaches at Chequers. So his own lawyers had to refer that information to the cabinet office. And now that information has been referred to uh, the police. Um, and literally just before we started recording, Johnson has announced that he's uh, let go his lawyers, <laughs> presumably, because they turned him in. Like, it, it's basically Al Capone getting caught on tax evasion because his accountants handed over the returns. Like, uh, yeah. it's so in any case, Johnson's supporters are now threatening, uh, according to the Times, to obstruct Rishi Sunak's prime So, again, at a time of political crisis, we've got a prime minister trying to work out whether the minister in charge of making laws has been herself guilty of rule breaking. And also, he's got his noisier predecessor, he's got two predecessors, but let's be honest, we don't count one of them because like, I've held in a fart for longer than she was Prime Minister. But Boris Johnson, his noisier predecessor, is again sabre-rattling about threatening to undermine his agenda. So all I'm saying is, once again, we are back in the same position we have been in since 2010, which is the country is facing a series of problems, and yet the Prime Minister is preoccupied by threats coming to him from within his own political party. Just
0: on that, you know, I think we're agreed on this idea that these stories about, uh, you know, breaking ministerial codes can be a distraction. Sometimes they're used by parties actively. Sometimes they're they're not. What's the other story? But actually, here's a story that's nothing to do with Westminster because here's a story that we probably should have been talking about. Suella Braverman famously says that she is the great champion of groomed and abused women and girls. Yep. She claims this is something that she cares a lot about and is willing to speak the hard truths on it. Obviously, we know that they are mistruths. And yet, an inquiry came out. It was a seven-year-long inquiry uh, which outlined recommendations around child sexual abuse. They said that the level of child sexual abuse in this country is tantamount to an epidemic And Suella Braverman did not implement them. She did a few. okay, a few. Alexis Jay, who chaired the inquiry, says the measures fall short and children, quote, won't get the protection they deserve. And that is something I would like to see her dragged over the coals for. Not a bloody speeding ticket. Um, One of the figures quoted by a victim's group was that one in four children in the UK will experience sexual abuse. One in four. That is I don't even have the words for it. Yeah. It's, it's a horrifying, terrifying number that demands urgent care and interest and public outcry, frankly. And yeah. it hasn't happened. And now you and I find ourselves sitting here once again talking about Soella Braverman. It's, yeah. like it's like a, yeah. I feel like this is some sort of, do you ever read, do you ever read any uh, classic myths? or
1: Classic myths? <laughs> are you talk about Spider-Man? Because if so, yes.
0: Are you familiar with The myth of Sisyphus,
1: are you? I I am familiar with the myth of Sisyphus.
0: I don't know why every time I come on here, I've got some like weird, like old school reference. It's not, uh,
1: I just think, I don't know why you're being disparaging about this, Coco. I think one of the things that we're learning over this podcast is the breadth of your cultural references. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. It's quite spectacular and takes in everything from The Fast and the Furious, (laughs) the film Showgirls, and the myth of Sisyphus. (laughs) I just, I genuinely, I mean this really earnestly. I just think the variety of your interests is unparalleled.
0: Anyway, guy called Sisyphus, he upsets a god. I can't remember which one it is. Greek, ancient Greek. Yeah, and so, this is part
1: of Coco's new feature called Coco's Glide to Classical Myths.
0: Yeah. Can't remember who it was. I don't know what he did, but anyway, he did something. He upset yeah. someone, um, and so he was told that his punishment is that he has to push this rock up a hill every single day um, and then the rock falls down and he must do it again. Repetition over and over and over again. And I feel sometimes Suella Braverman is my rock (laughs) and I am Sisyphus. Every week I have to push this rock of just awful politician saying stupid stuff that shouldn't be said. Yeah. And briefly, there is that moment of pleasure where we watch The Rock tumble that yeah. we will push it up again next week, <laughs> won't we? That's what we have to do.
1: <laughs> the bad week for The Rock, Zoella, is about to get worse because... There's about to be a huge uh, story coming out of the Home Office, which would be the latest net migration figures, which are due uh, to drop the day after we record this podcast. Uh, so as you listen to this on Thursday, you will know these figures for sure. As we sit here on Wednesday, uh, we are dealing with predictions. and Most analysts predict the net migration number has already passed 700,000. It was the hot-button topic of conversation at Prime Minister's Question Time. Let's hear a bit of Keir Starmer talking to Prime Minister Rishi Sunak. The Prime Minister stood on three Tory manifestos, each one promised to reduce immigration, each promise broken. They all stood on those manifestos as well. Why does he think his Home Secretary— Order. Order. I'm going to hear this question. Those who don't want to hear it, we know the answer. Kirstama. They all, they all stood on those manifestos. So, why does he think his Home Secretary seems to have such a problem coping with points based systems? Mr. Speaker. And the same respect will be shown, Prime Minister. Well, Mr. Speaker, just this week, we announced the biggest ever single measure to tackle legal migration, removing the right for international students to bring dependents, toughening the rules on post-study work and reviewing maintenance requirements. As so often, I find the conversation about, about immigration fundamentally depressing. And I find it depressing for two reasons. The first reason I find it depressing is for so long the Conservative Party said we want people to come here by safe and legal means. They've said we're against illegal immigration. We're against boats bringing asylum seekers over. We're against illegal immigration. We want to protect people from people smugglers. We want to stop illegal immigration. Now it turns out they don't fucking like legal immigration either. And the, th- the second thing that makes me really fundamentally depressed about it is that the Labour Party seems to also have accepted that line. So now... There is a political consensus that there is a good number of immigrants Mm. that should come to this country, which... But they don't know what
0: the number is, They don't know what the
1: number is. They just know that there's a number that we should be hitting that we're not hitting. Keir Starmer repeatedly quoted the figure of a quarter of a million. Now, in terms of that figure, it's worth mentioning that of those visas, 53,820 went to band five nurses. Now, if, if you have tried to use a hospital in this country, you will know that there is a staffing crisis in the National Health Service. We desperately need nurses to come to this country. Why are we framing this conversation that skilled workers coming into this country is now a bad thing? At what point do they just say, none of us, fucking want foreigners in this country yeah, because yeah, that's yeah. where it feels like it's heading to me
0: and I mean so, uh, the, the you
1: talk now because I've become excited <laughs> <laughs>
0: I've become excited <laughs> well, I mean because some just, of the I'm some just... of the numbers um, and again we don't have them right now but we we expect that a significant contribution to this number is going to be Ukrainian refugees yeah. and also people from Hong Kong who have been resettled here as part of a scheme uh, they are British citizens at the end of the day you know those are two schemes that we would be proud of that we yeah. would accept and and yet Despite that, despite that success story, there is still this culture. Any migration is bad. It's all bad. Um, if any of our listeners are sometimes wondering, how do Nish and Coco get on so well? <laughs> it's because we are real life friends. We are not yeah, thrown together. True. We are the... <laughs> not
1: thrown together by, by a, a pop Svengali. We're know. not the Spice Girls of political podcasting. Which one are you? Oh, I'm definitely somewhere between Scary and Ginger
0: a POC always picks scary? Yeah, of course you have
1: to pick scary.
0: I mean, she's a legend, obviously. But, but if, I, I, think... yeah, if
1: I may return to my a piece of stand-up comedy that I did in 2016, the Spice Girls are inherently racist because there was one black member and she was called scary. Which was so outrageous. And they used to make her do raps when, with love, she cannot rap. <laughs>
0: no, she cannot rap. She was only scary in the sense that her talent and style yeah. and potential... Was scary to the mediocrity of the <laughs> pop industry at the time.
1: Anyway, there is no uh, Simon Fuller slash Cowl figure. <laughs> no, uh, exactly. Puppet mastering this process, and
0: we we met during a book that we worked on together That's called right, The yeah. Good Immigrant, and that came out. God, I went seven years ago. Two thousand sixteen. Like yeah, it yes. was
1: convened by Nikesh Shukla, who is a a novelist and a cultural godfather in this country. I, I, I don't really know how to describe him. Beyond the fact that the simple fact that he is a writer and a novelist, but he is also a kind of, most people of color our age who work in the media or in the arts owe him some debt of gratitude.
0: Although he did text me the other day that uh, the new Fast and Furious was rubbish, so I think he might be dead to me now. But anyway, um, moving <laughs> yeah. aside, and, and at that time, that was seven years ago, yeah. you know, we were trying to talk about how we're not immigrants, we're British born, yeah. we are British, but we felt that the poison of the... And the xenophobia of the immigration debate, how it was affecting our everyday lives, how we saw the glum face of our friends and families and how it had this yeah, kind of it, effect. I, I, I'm and it's sorry so to say, disappointing to... It's just, yeah, nothing changed. No, and
1: I'm sorry to say, it is personal to us. Like, it, I, 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 as much as I want to have a kind of reasonable discussion about this, I can't take the personal out about this. When I hear people talking about immigrants, it just, like, if you don't have immigrant families, just try and empathise with this for one second, which I'm sure our, our listeners will be able to do. They're literally talking about my fucking mum and dad. That's who they're talking about. When they talk about immigrant numbers, they are referring to our parents, yes. you know? So it, it it is very difficult for this to not feel personal uh, to some extent. But where we've ended up in a situation is we've gone from a book in 2016 that uh, as a kind of satirical... Barb aimed at people who try and categorize good and bad immigrants. We're now in a situation where the perception is there is no good immigrant. There is simply a good amount of immigrants.
0: The New York Times calls Britbox the best of British telly. Stream acclaimed original series, including Payback, starring Peter Mullen. Stonehouse, starring Matthew McFadden, and Archie, the man who became Cary Grant, starring Jason Isaacs. Plus, discover powerful new series like Three Little Birds and the return of BAFTA-winning drama Time, starring Bella Ramsey, Tamra Lawrence, and Jodie Whittaker. Stream the best of British TV only on BritBox. Start a free trial at BritBox.com. Save the UK isn't just about what's going wrong in politics, it's also about how we can fix it. And we promised you that when we launched this show, we'd get some help from people with big brains and big ideas. So, welcome. Today's Big Brain is Daniel Chandler, philosopher and economist and author of. Sorry, it's Big Brain bad. It's weird waiting no, to do I No, mean, I don't he?
2: think I've. It's, it's not a. It's not the standard description, but I'm happy. <laughs> also, it. it's, so, like, so, uh, it's not something that yeah.
1: you normally hear <laughs> said in earnest. It depends if
2: you're describing the size of my head. <laughs> then it would be, yeah. I don't know, more well, ambiguous. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I assumed it was just the brain. Just the brain Here comes than,
0: a giant headed <laughs>
2: philosopher. <laughs>
0: 100 percent just a comment on your brain size. I, I genuinely your think I've never I, I only reflected
1: it. in my book. Yeah, as yeah, reflected in yeah. his book, and not crucially his head size. So, how have we ended up in a sort of like weird Victorian phrenology conversation?
0: <laughs> oh no, this is going wrong. Let's go back. Let's go back. Um He
1: has the skull shape of an economist.
0: <laughs> and he is also the author of Free and Equal, What Would a Fair Society Look Like? Uh, welcome to Daniel Chandler.
1: Thank you. Thanks for joining us, Daniel. Um how are you?
2: I'm very well, yeah.
1: I'm very happy to be here. Well, that's good. We'll we'll soon fix that. Uh, (laughs) um, I I really enjoyed the book, and I will confess, a lot of it involves the sort of updating of ideas of John Rawls. Now, I'm going to be honest with you, Daniel. I, on several occasions in my life, have pretended to know who John Rawls is. (laughs) In several conversations, I have nodded through. I've just gone, "Mm, mmm, Rawls-y. I
0: feel like that's a great indicator of your life.
1: What, that I
2: bring Yeah. 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 <laughs> I, I, yeah. It's funny. I think he is one of those names that yeah. some people have a sort of vague awareness of and maybe feel they ought to know more about, but yeah. almost nobody
1: does. And that's, <laughs> I'm sort of hoping to change that. But anyway, you, you keep going. But that's right. It's great because it's a mission statement of you trying to, you really believe in these ideas and you're trying to update them and then apply them in a kind of real world political framework. Um, but before we get on to. of the kind of key ideas that you talked about Mm -hmm. i just want to i've got very worked up about immigration in the studio Mm -hmm. which is why you the any atmosphere that you can sense is just me thinking about rishi sunak it's not it's (laughs) not i've not suddenly resented coco uh it's just yeah um i i I was interested in what you had to say in the book specifically about immigration which i know is it's a brief part of the book Mm -hmm. but i just um i'm just fascinated by the question what would a fair immigration policy look like? And in terms of the framework that you're laying out about mm. reforming liberal democracy, what mm. to you does a f- fair immigration system look like? Well, in with the hardest,
2: <laughs> <laughs> the hardest questions. I mean, I think the starting point is a basic humanitarian duty that we have just the people as people as other people from other countries that means we should have safe routes for asylum seekers and refugees i feel like that's the that should be the reasonably non-controversial bit of a migration of an immigration policy sadly it obviously isn't non-controversial and so no i mean much it's what the, the rhetoric
1: most, today is just It seems think, like disgusting. one of the most controversial and, uh, things you can say yeah i'm not even sure i'm not sure how this translates to public opinion but certainly in terms of a large section of the press and seemingly at least the two main political parties. It it does feel like a slightly contentious thing to say.
2: Yes, I think it is. And it feels like an area where just, I mean, I don't feel like I have a solution other than that some political and moral leadership is needed, that those, that like the the focus on that question and the divisive way that it's talked about isn't just some natural fact of the world or how people feel towards people from other countries. It's a product of the way that politicians have chosen to talk about immigration. I, I also think it's, It's the product of an absence of other bigger constructive ideas about how to fix all of the other problems with our society. I think it's when we lack those ideas, and in a sense, it is the lack of those ideas that was the motivation for my book that we move towards these divisive topics that set people against one another because... Of sort of not having enough of you know anything else to say i think part of the problem with the way that we've approached it at the moment is it's just been seen as a tool for economic growth without much thought to how that economic growth is distributed and it is the case that since the early 90s like net migration from the eu ended up had the sort of overall effect of slightly increasing the incomes of the richest people or the highest earners in society and reducing those of of people at the bottom and, you know, so I think there's some, there is some justified discontent with the way that immigration has become part of a broader economic strategy that just prioritizes growth without caring about inequality. And that if we want people to, you know, if we, a, a, a sort of just migration policy would be part of a broader economic agenda that really focuses on genuinely shared prosperity and trying to raise the life chances in particular of the least well-off. That's the kind of principle, I suppose, of
1: of rules that we'll maybe come to later. The interesting thing about the way you've gone about the book is you've got some quite tangible practical things that you want to talk about that you think could actually improve society in the kind of short to medium term. I'm thinking of things uh, of democracy vouchers, abolishing private schools, universal basic in- income tackling inequality at the source and workplace democracy, which again, it feels so far away in terms of it's actual practical things to do with people's day-to-day lives than the sort of slightly vague political promises that are certainly coming out of the major political parties um, at the moment.
2: I think definitely the the major focus of the book, hopefully the payoff for people reading it, is that it's a book of like of solutions of yeah. big ideas that aren't just tweaking at the edges that would actually make society better. but I guess the other thing that the book is trying to do, you know some of those ideas, like the ones you just listed, Nish, are you know they're not completely original to this yeah. book. What's different is that those ideas are also brought together within a coherent philosophy. So they don't just feel like a shopping list of disconnected but clever policy ideas. They're part of of like a broader vision that fits together into one whole of what a better society would look like. And that's, I mean, I think we, you know, we maybe won't spend much time on rules, but that's what you get from rules as this philosopher, this kind of big picture vision that's, I think, really missing from our political conversation. And in particular, the thing that you get from Uh, Rawls is a set of principles to do with freedom, equality and sustainability. And the policies that I set out in the book all follow from a, a sort of simple set of principles. The reason I wanted to write about Rawls is not just that he's by a long way considered to be the most important political philosopher of the last hundred years, but he's like a constructive philosopher. He's like a yeah, he's a constructive philosopher who has a, an idea about what society could look like and is sort of trying to persuade people. It's realistic, it's justified, it's doable. And I guess what I'm, you know, he, he was still a philosopher, didn't have that much to say about exactly how we could put it into practice. And the purpose of the book is to kind of try to do that, pick up where this philosopher left off.
1: One of the things I was really interested in is how we pay for politics, And, Mm. you know, we're in conversations in this country about the influence of donors and there's been huge question marks um, around the connections between kind of cronyism in politics with the COVID contracts, with Richard Sharp's appointment as BBC chairman, there's there's a huge question mark hanging over this. We, we haven't gone as far as the American system and their super PACs, but there is a question brewing in the UK about where the money for politics is coming from. So just, can you explain just briefly, because I'd actually never come across this before, mm. what a democracy voucher is. Yes. As far, it, it's it, such it, a good idea. Well, voucher <laughs> is, va- like, is, is a is like, word like, I sort of associate with a, present somebody gave you for your birthday when you were a kid and they don't know you. <laughs> like, I'm sort Okay, of just, such, yeah. just can
0: I just stop you there? I love vouchers. So if you're you looking mean? to get me something... I honestly love a voucher. I think they're
2: amazing. Well, Do you want a democracy voucher? <laughs> <there>? yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I mean, like,
0: democracy voucher, Nando's voucher, sort of. Okay, okay. How would a how would a democracy voucher work? So, I get democracy. Yeah, So no. Okay, so the basically cool. the
2: the idea of a democracy voucher is you know it's a solution to the problem of money in in politics. So in the UK at the moment, I think in 2019. It was just over 100 super donors were responsible for nearly half of all donations to political parties. Each of those people giving around $450,000 each on average. Um, So the idea of democracy vouchers is... Well, the starting point is that that is obviously a ridiculous way to organise a democracy if the, the principle that underpins democracy is one of political equality. And the alternative, in a way, has two parts. One is to limit private donations to a low level... But obviously we we still need, we do need money in politics. We just don't want it to be coming from this small and unrepresentative donor class. And the idea of democracy vouchers is that you would give every citizen an equal amount of money per year or per election cycle, say, I don't know, £20, £50, that they could give to the party of their choice which is a policy that would just completely transform the incentives of our political system. It would mean that rather than having to go cap in hand to this mm. rich and unrepresentative donor class, yeah. parties would have to appeal to everyone on an equal basis. It, refillable
0: it, cokes. It,
2: refillable cokes?
0: Well, I'm just, sorry, I was thinking about Nando's. <laughs> <laughs>
2: oh, cokes, I see. Yeah.
0: I, yes, yes. So, you've so. mentioned Nando's yeah. and distracted <laughs> yourself. <I> was... <laughs> yeah. Anyway, sorry, please continue. But I do think that would would be a winning policy. That would be a winning policy. But, you, you
2: know, part, I think, of the appeal of the system would be that, you know, in order to entice people to give them their their democracy vouchers, parties might go about politics in a much more community-oriented way, whether it's offering uh, unfillable cokes <laughs> yeah. at like a political event not or unfillable, not. unfillable, refillable. refillable. <laughs> did I say unfillable? <laughs> refillable, oh God.
0: Unfillable cokes is the unfillable. offer from the Tory party now. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> yeah, that's what that
2: is. <laughs> um, but yes, yeah, so I think that, you know, it would it would encourage a different, Different incentives in our political system, a more maybe community-based way of of raising money. And the money Mm. comes from the
1: public purse, right? Yeah, it would be
2: state funding, but I suppose the difference to traditional models of public funding is that it really decentralises and democratises the system. It puts... That funding in everyone's in in citizens' hands equally. That you know the traditional form of public funding is basically to allocate funding on the basis of the last election result. Right. And the problem with that is that it makes it very hard for new parties to emerge. Yeah. And It makes you know it contributes to this to a sort of stuck political system where mm. it's difficult for things to change because in order to get the vouchers you need to have won votes, but you need vouchers in order to win the votes. And you right. know this doesn't. It's not a purely uh, philosophical thought <laughs> experiment. So in Seattle, they've implemented this kind of democracy voucher system for local elections. Wow! I think they did that in 2017. They've run three elections under that scheme. And, you know, the results are what you would expect, like more, more people participating in politics, often from uh, less well-represented groups, uh, and more competitive elections too, more people standing for office, incumbents being more likely to be defeated. That, you know, it's not perfect. You know, yeah. in Seattle, one problem is that it's a voluntary system, although it turns out that most people have actually signed up to it. And I think it's, it's voluntary for constitutional reasons in America, it would be not possible to make it mandatory. Yeah, right. Um, I think that and the other problem, you know, t- t- take up has been relatively low. I think that right. would be the other problem, in all honesty, that I would flag with the system. But I think that's partly because it's connected to local elections. And because it's such a new Idea. Do. Yeah. I don't think those are fundamental problems, though. And I think it's a system that we should, uh, you know, start to roll out here.
1: And in terms of involving people more in politics, yeah. one of the other ideas that you talk about in the book that is an idea that, as you say, has been in the kind of political ether for a while mm. is this idea of citizens' assemblies and maybe an alternative to the House of Lords that involves essentially people doing it like jury duty. But is that yeah. right? Is that a fair characterization?
2: Yeah, that is. So, yeah. th- you know, there's this idea that we could, yeah, that citizens' assemblies comprised of randomly selected citizens. It seems like a an outlandish idea to us now. I yeah. suppose the one, as you said, jury duty is the one place where that continues, yeah. where that model exists at the moment. And to be fair with jury duty, everyone's first thing People is, are how not- can I get out of this? <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Maybe it's not the comparison you most want. But, I mean, what's interesting is that that, as a as a democratic method, it actually has an amazingly long pedigree going back to ancient Athens. That was actually the predominant way that decision-making was done. And it sort of went out of favour as democracies got larger, representative electoral democracy became the norm. And I think I argue in the book that we should combine those systems. I don't think we could get rid of elections entirely. I think some people are drawn to... Citizens' Assemblies as a total alternative to a representative
1: democracy. But that seems, that seems if I may use an academic term, quite spicy. <laughs> like, in terms of, <laughs> yeah. like, that doesn't... That seems like... Because then the composition of the Citizens' Assembly suddenly becomes essential to representing the entire country. And without democratic elections, it does feel... Yeah, it feels exactly. Uneasy.
2: I think people are drawn to it because there's so much... Uh, bad feeling towards our existing political class. But it's like, oh, couldn't we just do away with politicians altogether? And I think, you know, for what we need to do is make that political class more representative through things like democracy vouchers. I don't think we can do away with them altogether. I think parties, despite the flaws that they have now, they do serve a really vital function in a large-scale democracy. They, they, They are places where a distinctive kind of political expertise gets cultivated and where people put forward different visions of how society could be. I think we can't lose sight of that altogether. But, you know, up to now, there've been a couple of quite prominent experiments or not, I don't know, experiments, but uses of citizens' assemblies. So particularly in Ireland, citizens' assemblies were set up to tackle a couple of the thorniest issues. So abortion and gay marriage, you know, in in a traditionally conservative Catholic country, citizens assemblies came together, they discussed those issues, ended up putting forward proposals in both cases to legalize abortion and gay marriage that then went to a referendum and were approved. And I think I suppose the question I'm trying to think through in the book is how to integrate that method into the core functioning of our democratic system. And so one way of doing that would be to have a chamber, a second chamber could be, you know, replacing the House of Lords where citizens citizens are selected on that basis. You know, you could do it in other ways too. You could also have a system like in America where if enough citizens uh, sign a petition, you have a referendum. So you could have a different system where citizens could sign a petition and initiate a citizens' assembly yeah. that would, I think, lead to a, maybe would end up with a referendum, but it would be much a much better informed referendum because everyone would be able to see, you know, to follow the deliberation of a group that actually sat down and mm. thought through things, and we maybe wouldn't end up with the kind of mess that we had with the Brexit referendum, where I think. Right you know, it wasn't the most informed I mean, vote.
0: I, I love the idea of a citizens' assembly. But as I was reading your book, mm-hmm. I did have one question about it. Mm-hmm. And that relates to some of the things you were saying about free speech. Mm-hmm. So in the book, you talk about the uh, banning of hate speech as being ultimately ineffective. And perhaps the ideal Rawlsian system would actually be the American system. or well, the closest thing to that we have mm-hmm. as like English-speaking nations. Mm-hmm. That scary for me. You know, Mm. I think about all the uh, protests outside of abortion clinics. I think about just some of the really inflammatory disinformation Mm. that's come out. I mean, Alex Jones, all those sort of people. And I find it hard to imagine that you could have a functional citizens' assemblies if you didn't have certain restrictions on hate speech. I wondered if you could explain that relationship.
2: What I'm sceptical about is laws that Ban the expression of an opinion, of particular opinions in any context. So I suppose that like in the book, I argue that, you know, you could prevent, I'm trying to think of a, sorry, <laughs> that, you know, that that like banning direct racist uh, abuse on the streets, that obviously we should do. I'm not so sure that we should prevent much as I might hate the views of neo-Nazis, I'm not sure we should be making it illegal for them to publish it online. You know, I think it's a difficult question. I think these issues about free speech get uh, are even more complicated, I think, in the age of the internet and social media where speech can have all sorts of, you know, the, the, the link, it's much harder to draw the link between speech and violence that I think is the should be the sort of focal point
0: for free speech laws. But I guess that, that, that and, link is becoming more is is it, yeah the, the the link itself i i agree with you is important to establish but it's becoming harder to establish uh, an example that comes mm. to my mind is obviously the incel culture mm. you know of course these men are, are welcome to say that women are should be stuck in the kitchen but we we are beginning to see a correlation between that and lone shooters and yeah. we are beginning to see mm. a correlation between that and uh you know a, a, a a threatening environment for young women in schools. I, I don't think we're going to yeah. solve it right here. But what I would say is I really did strongly agree with your point yeah. where you said that the state should have a role of not just sort of saying that's bad, but yeah. also saying what's good.
2: My view is that when it comes to banning speech, our primary criteria should be what's necessary to prevent direct harassment and violence. What's really important is that that's not the only thing that, you know, the state doesn't only have the ability to ban things. And what I'm trying to do in the book is say that even if we're not banning stuff, it doesn't mean we should be relaxed about these kinds of hateful and anti-democratic views that exist in society. And that politicians and the state can take a much more active role in trying to combat those views. In a sense, it's sort of combating speech with speech i suppose i'm trying to carve out an area that's you know there's like the coercive force of the state in banning things then there's the persuasive role of the state in trying to combat these kinds of views and i think that you know that the sort of hardcore free speech advocates don't want to go there and that's i suppose that's my attempt to find a way to tackle these views that doesn't just rest on on banning stuff i mean
0: that's we've Sort of um, talked about that in the past, haven't we? We've talked about everyone always wants to talk about oh, what's the right number for immigrants? So it's like a sort of uh, a dirty number that less is, is, is more, but actually, no one's making the case of immigration is good, yeah, as we a positive. It, yeah, a positive. I
1: mean, I, I think for me, the issue one of the issues I've had with the con how do we police the far right and far right speech is my real concern is that it feels at points. And I mean, it's very explicitly clear with the Republican Party in America, but certainly watching the Home Secretary last week address the National Conservatism Conference where elsewhere there were some pretty, there were some talking points that could have been found on far right wing uh, comment boards, and certainly seeing a government minister use the phrase cultural Marxism, which again, we come back to the same conversation that that is a trope that dates back to Nazi Germany and is a kind of, I Mike, it, and is something that, you know, groups watching antisemitism have warned mainstream politicians about. I think one of the big problems almost we've got to solve is cut the pipeline between the mainstream conservative parties and the far right. But it just seems to me that too often members of parliament are parroting hard right-wing talking points. And that, for me, if we, that's the thing that you can fight. Because I, 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 I agree with you, it is difficult to police speech on the internet. It's very, very hard. We also, there, I don't think we spend enough time acknowledging these kind of difficult grey areas. And I think protesting at abortion clinics is such a difficult ethical grey area because instinctively I would say everybody at this table, and I, I would assume all of our listeners are, both simultaneously in favour of the right to protest as an absolute essential freedom, but equally in favour of the rights of women to go and get abortions without mm. being harassed by campaigners. And I think, mm. like, I think it's probably important that we at least acknowledge that there are these difficult grey areas, mm. yeah, areas I, with difficult I, conversations. Yeah, I completely
2: agree, and I feel like that's where this philosopher Rawls is so helpful because he his this first principle that he has that sets out a set of really important basic freedoms, both personal freedoms of speech, religion, sexuality, also political freedoms, the freedoms that we need to participate in politics as equals and the stuff we've just been talking about. All of those freedoms matter and none takes an automatic priority over all of the others. And I think part of the problem in the debates that we have about Whatever freedoms, whether it's, you know, protest versus the right to abortion or others, is, there is a tendency towards to sort of for those debates to be polarised and for one side to just assert that it's freedom, freedom of religious expression or of protest or has to take absolute priority over everything else.
1: And before we let you go, I just want to ask you one more question, because I do think one of the things that's so interesting about you is you are an academic, an economist, but you also worked as a civil servant for a time and you worked uh, in the office of the Deputy Prime Minister and in the policy unit for David Cameron so you have actual experience of delivery and how these systems actually work do you feel optimistic that in terms of how our political system is set up we will be able to deliver on some of these big yeah. potentially society saving ideas.
0: Is there a desire for big ideas to be brought into the current framework that we have? Cuz
1: something the, the the only thing that concerns me is there's a lot of very clever people i know that did work in politics and policy and have now just decided that they're better off working in either academia or in pressure groups or charities. Are you back in are you in academia because you believe the system was unsavable. <laughs> that, that, that's, that, that's the question that concerns me. <laughs> yeah, good.
2: No, I don't no, I don't think it's unsavable. Yeah. I think there is an appetite for big change, first of all. I think there's actually quite a lot of polling to support that. I was looking at some of the figures on people's attitudes to democracy at the moment and it's more than half of people in the UK think the political system needs either major reform or to be completely overhauled. So yeah. the language is quite, is quite strong on, in terms of what people want. There's also, I think, a very big desire for serious economic change. I was actually reading some of the Labour Party's post-election analysis from the last election. And that was, you know, the conclusion they reached is that lots of the policies in you know, some of the economic policies in Jeremy Corbyn's manifesto, some of the quite radical economic ideas about higher taxes on the rich and nationalization are, are quite popular. I think there is a real appetite for change, and I suppose the reason I went stepped out of politics and into academia was a feeling that what was missing was, i suppose something that really brought all these ideas together right what progressive parties have been missing is this kind of vision that there's a tendency to be for, for them to feel like they're just following focus groups and polling and they just put forward the policies that they think are the sort of tweaks that are feasible at the next election and that doesn't really get people out of bed that doesn't get people excited enough and that what we if we want to bring about this change we also need a longer term vision of that and excite people and inspire people and that the purpose of the book is you know it's not I think the ideas are probably too radical for the next election and I yeah. think that's fine you know I think that the aim is to take a slightly longer view and try to shift our politics in in that direction
0: right thank yeah. you let's so hope you're much. not shifting
2: it
1: like the rock of sisyphus
0: <laughs> which is a
1: conversation yeah. that we had earlier and i was thrilled to bring it back around
0: yeah. I, I don't know if you actually heard that part
1: <laughs> i heard a bit a bit
2: of it it's the you have to just going again and again yeah and yeah. Again. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah no let's hope let's hope not yeah. <laughs> is there a more rousing way to? <laughs>
0: yeah
1: no i don't think I don't think so. I think there's nothing wrong in ending on hope. Yes, I think that <laughs> that's a good that's a good okay. place, so, Uh The book is called Free and Equal. What would a fair society look like? Daniel Chandler, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you.
0: NetCredit is here to say yes because you're more than a credit score. Apply in minutes and get a decision as soon as the same day. Loans offered by NetCredit or lending partner banks and serviced by NetCredit. Application subject to review and approval. Learn more at netcredit.com/partners. NetCredit. Credit to the people.
1: For over 130 years, McCormick has helped you make Mom's lasagna. To keep her secret recipe alive. Take over taco night. No matter how chaotic your day is.
0: It's time for us to name our hero and villain of the week and in an attempt to play against our usual type, this week Nish is going to try and be nice while I'm going to bring the rage.
1: Yeah, I, I think for the sake of my blood pressure and so there's not another video floating around on Instagram of me looking like my head's about to explode, <laughs> uh, I'll uh, I'll pick hero. But Coco, let's do it. Tell us who is our PSUK villain of the week.
0: Okay, so my villain of the week is James Cleverly, the Foreign Secretary. He is... Currently on an eight day tour of the Caribbean and Latin America. That's fine. He's foreign sec. He has to go. He's got to go abroad. No problem. We get that. You
1: can't be foreign in Britain. (laughs) That slogan works on a number of different
0: levels. But it's how he's doing this tour that makes him the villain. He has hired a luxurious jet, the jet, by the way, that Logan Roy flies around in succession. Yeah. So you. you, (laughs) What?
1: Why? Bear in mind, that is a program that has professional wealth consultants so that they like specifically use products that are the superest of the super right, rich. Right, exactly. Like this is like, this is, this is beyond parody.
0: So exactly. And I mean, you know, Rachel Reeves got in trouble for just flying business class <laughs> and here's James Cleverly going around in Logan Roy's jet, some sort of show of status. I, I have no idea what it could could feasibly be um, and it's reportedly costing more than 10,000 pounds an hour across his tour it will be roughly 400,000 pounds that we're paying the taxpayers paying and I mean when you see the tour right so so far he's gone to Kingston Jamaica Cartagena and Bogota in Colombia Scheduled stops in Chile and Brazil I mean it sounds great doesn't it, it sounds absolutely lovely and then you see the pictures of him Honestly, Nish, I,
1: I haven't seen the photos. One of the
0: pictures, I'm not even joking, was a picture of him. He's walking around, he's in a linen shirt, button undone, with a salmon pink cravat and some Ray Bans. The man's on a gap year.
1: He's on a tax <laughs> What is he? Pay- Benoit Blanc.
0: <laughs> he's on a gap year. He's having the best time on our dime. And look, I accept he's probably doing some work, which I'm sure justifies this whole thing. But I mean, private jets are terrible for the environment. Yeah. You absolutely don't need to be riding around in Logan Roy's and for that reason I think it's offensive to the public who are going through a cost of living crisis I think it's smug to throw your holiday plans in all of our faces and so he is my villain of the week
1: That is an outstanding choice
0: When he comes back you will see that he'll have a little Cloth, wristband, <laughs> guarantee you. He'll be telling you stories and, and he'll be doing a speech and he'll be like, yeah, so it really reminds me of this time in Chile. <laughs> the man is on a gap year and we're all paying for it. What does that make us mugs? I, <laughs> can,
1: do you not think, do you not take some shred of optimism for this? Because this is real, we're about to get fired energy. Oh, totally. This, this is, is this bucket is, list, isn't yeah, it? He's is, like,
0: we're out. <laughs> we are out. <laughs> Labor's coming in.
1: This is me at my office temp job in 2009, taking a stack of printer paper an hour before I was summoned to see my manager for a chat. That is absolutely what's going on here.
0: 100%. I can't wait to see his photos of him swimming with turtles or whatever. He really is. Oh, we're out of here now. This will never happen again. So who is your hero of the week?
1: Well, for the first time in this series, I get to be the good cop, but... In keeping with my, I guess we have to say, frosty demeanour, it is a story that involves absolutely appalling racial abuse. But my hero of the week is absolutely Real Madrid footballer Vinicius Junior. Vinicius Junior has been standing up to racist football fans in stadiums in Spain for a number of years now. And uh, this weekend, some racists were directing awful abuse him abuse so bad you can both hear and see it in television coverage now we've been to football matches you know Mm. how often there are horrendous chants being chanted but it doesn't get picked up on the television because the mics are not close enough so you have to imagine the volume of Mm. noise if we can hear it on television footage Um, Rail have reported the abuse to the Spanish prosecutor's office as a hate crime and Brazilians are protesting outside the Spanish consulate on Tuesday once again the response of the league has been an absolute absolute disgrace they've been Valencia has been sanctioned with a partial stadium closure for five matches and been fined 45,000 euros but Vinicius himself was also actually sent off in the game right and the fact that he is facing this kind of provocation and facing this kind of appalling abuse and the abuse is appalling there are football fans hanging effigies of him, right? It is so horrendous. But Vinicius Jr. is one of the outstanding footballers in the world, but that doesn't mean he should have to put up with this stuff. And he has clearly decided uh, that enough is enough and he has been unwilling to stand for this. And he said that La Liga, which is Spain's top division of football, uh, he said that it's not football, it's La Liga in response to the lack of action from the league which is an adaptation of the league's own slogan and he said that the competition that once belonged to Ronaldinho, Ronaldo Messi and Cristiano now belongs to the racists. He is refusing to back down and for that reason he is my hero of the week.
0: Legend. So we just have some time to dip into our mailbag. Going back to chat shit, get banged, our campaign to stop politicians lying. We heard last week that the phrase Americans use is talk shit, get hit. (laughs) And we were wondering if there were any other variations from around the world. Actually, I'd like to add one more into that. Someone else tweeted me uh, to tell me about a phrase in America, which is, Fuck around and find Fuck out. Fuck around and find
1: out is yeah. uh, that's the phrase I was familiar with.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's, it's especially quite vague, and so therefore maybe extra threat. I
1: think it's much more threatening. <laughs> I think find out promises untold consequences. You've got no
0: idea where we're going to go. At least bang, you sort of know how far it's. going You gonna know get. how far it's going to go. <laughs> yeah. yeah,
1: it's a little bang. It's, <laughs> yeah. it's you're going to get. You, you're getting hit, but in the way you'd get hit if you were a villain in the '60s version of Batman.
0: So now we can add another phrase to our collection. It was so brilliant. We've had a message from a Brazilian. Eduarda Pimente says they have a similar phrase. She's written it out for us in Portuguese. I'm gonna try and say it. I am so Here sorry, Eduarda. I believe it is fala o que quer, uovo o que no care. Oh, I haven't said that in the right way, but apparently it means I, that
1: has can I just say yeah. that's come out a lot less offensive than I thought it was going to. <laughs> <laughs> I I <laughs> As someone who does not speak Portuguese, I thought that sounded like a good effort.
0: (laughs) Thank you. I just wait for um, other Portuguese people to tell me differently. Uh, Portuguese-speaking people. Uh, The phrase means, if you say whatever you want, you'll hear what you don't want to hear, which is a nice way to tell someone to shut it. (laughs) (laughs) On the other hand, Eduardo continues, we also have Dede no cué" Greta Ria.
1: With all apologies to all of our Portuguese-speaking listeners.
0: Uh, just please know I apologise. Um, it literally means a finger up the arsehole and lots of screaming. <laughs> it is used to describe a chaotic situation. It might be useful to UK political politics. Thank you so much, Eduarda. It is very useful and I will begin learning how to say it soon.
1: A finger up the arsehole <laughs> and lots of screaming. Well, I guess we've got an episode title. Yeah.
0: Um, And we also received a note from Slice of Dog. Uh, They were inspired by our interview with Will Moy last week and they said that they had signed the full fact petition and are considering becoming a regular donor. Fact-checking politicians and organisations is crucial work and will only become more important as AI-generated material crowds out real news. So thank you for the support, Slice of Dog. We are glad to hear that our podcast is helping connect people with the right people
1: yeah that's good that's really positive um, if you want to get in touch with us you can do it by emailing psuk at listening.co.uk. that's psuk at listening.co.uk. or you can always tweet us at Pod Save the UK, or if you watch the episode on YouTube, you can always leave a comment there. And I'm sure the YouTube comment board is, as ever, a place of enlightened debate. Truly the modern version of the Greek Agora. <laughs> if you're new to the show, uh, remember to hit follow on your app and you'll get a new episode every week. Thanks very much for listening. Uh, see you next week, okay.
0: Bye, guys. Thanks for listening. Also, love how you slipped a classical reference in there in the end. <laughs> oh, I see. He's petty. He's petty. He's keeping score. Uh, please join us next week for more uh, scorekeeping, thank you
1: remember uh, to mute uh, succession on all of your social media unless until you're able to watch the episode that's the most if you take nothing else away from this podcast mute succession and words related to succession before you've watched the finale <laughs> thanks for listening goodbye <laughs> Pod Save the UK is a reduced listening production for Crooked Media
0: thanks to senior producer Musty Aziz and digital producer Alex Bishop
1: Video editing was by Will Darkin and the music is by Vasilis Fotopoulos.
0: Thanks to our engineer, David Degahi.
1: The executive producers are Louise Cotton, Dan Jackson and Michael Martinez.
0: Watch us on the Pod Save the World YouTube. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Pod Save the UK.
1: And hit subscribe for new shows every Thursday on Spotify, Amazon or Apple or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Escape to Ocean City, Maryland